Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Kaboom! Hey, it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. Whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home, I'm Scott Colborn. Jim Shorney's over here. And Jim, how's your week been? Pretty good. Uh, still here. Still walking upright. After we talk to Charlene and do pet talk, let's have a, like a weather update, okay? We can do that, sure. I hope you guys and gals out there are staying cool. In fact, I hope everybody that was moaning and complaining about the cold winter and the cold spring, ooh, it's 55 degrees, it's so cold. I hope you folks have turned your air conditioning off and I hope you've got your windows wide open. <laughs> Just enjoy the high heat, okay? Okay? Jeez. I got the air conditioning going. I got hot coffee, man. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm ready. You bet. It's summer in Nebraska, folks. Hey, with us by phone is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. She makes all things better on Saturday morning. Charlene, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Hey, what's going on in terms of activities at the Capital Humane Society? We've got several events going on. Uh, today is our Tails and Taps event. You oh, cool. Can, uh, yeah, you can uh, still attend. You can learn more by going to our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. Um, tickets will not be available online now, but you could still visit one of the participating breweries. Um, so you could check that out. Um, also, um, we do have a feline, a fabulous feline adoption promotion going on. Um, and it's actually not going to happen uh, on Friday and Saturday, but Sunday through Thursdays, the first five adult cats, one year or older, that are adopted each day, um, their adoption fee will be covered. Wow. Yeah. What a deal. And this then, is in memory of then, Mary Jo Livingston's beloved yeah. cat, Shadow. Mm. Yes, and that's so generous and kind. And oh, then cool. we do have our critter adoption promotion going on, too. Um, and that is that all the critters, so our hamsters and ferrets and uh, guinea pigs, are reduced by 50%. Okay, this is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. We're going to dial up capitalhumanesociety.org on the old computer. You guys and gals join in, capitalhumanesociety.org. And let's start with uh, cats and kittens for adoption. Okay, and we have a lot of cuties. We're going to start with Chad. And Chad is one of our younger kittens. He's just three months old, a domestic (laughs) short hair. So cute. He's just kind of walking toward the camera there. A really nice kitten ready to be your forever friend. Beautiful cat. And look at those ears sticking up and alert. And uh, as is usually the case with kittens, the ears look mm-hmm. a little bit oversized for the head, but you know, <laughs> we'll grow into them. So you could right. use you could use the, the the soft the chad. Right? Correct. Or you can say cad. Uh-huh. <laughs> the or cad. Cad, cad, cad. You cad, you. Okay. Chad, what a great-looking cat. Hey, do you have a buddy that's going to maybe go home with you? Who's your buddy? Billy, or Millie is our next cat, and she's a six-month-old, domestic medium hair, mostly white cat, uh, a beautiful cat, wants to play, relax, repeat. Just a, a wonderful companion. 
Oh, that's a striking picture, too. Millie's got, she's all curled up, and uh, she's on um, sort of a tartan, if you will, a uh, red and black uh, blanket. Looks great. Hey, Millie, how you doing? White kitty. Now, her, her body is not enormous. It's just the way the camera okay. is shooting. <laughs> camera angle. That's right. She's, she would be a fun uh, cat. They caught her good side, so to speak. <laughs> we, we got Chad and Billy. And who's their buddy? Masala. And oh, Masala has a really oh. cute look on her face. She is a five-month-old spade female. She's just kind of like, what is that what look on her face? What world do you have in your hand? Can I eat it? Can I lick it? Can I rub against just, it? Yep, she's just popping out of her little hiding spot there, ready to meet a new family and have a very happy life. Now, Jim, is this is this a half a cat? I think it's a whole cat. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. The other half is on the other side of the hole. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is the first masala that we've ever had on the show. I, I think you're right. I can't remember another masala, mm-hmm. but that's very interesting. Um, there is a uh, uh, East Indian dish that's very close to that. So if, if I say that name a lot, I'm going to get hungry here. Chad, <laughs> Millie, and masala. Uh, three great cats. Their pictures are up at capitalhumanesociety.org. And... Uh, Tell us about hours open today and tomorrow. We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. Oh, and hey, Jim. Yes. Take a look at the picture right below Masala of Ralph. Ralph. Look at, hey, Ralph. Look at how Ralph's reaching like that, with a stretching out with a pause. Isn't that fun? Uh, cats know how to stretch, <laughs> let me tell you. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. They've turned it into an art form. Spread those toes out. Come on, show us, Ralph. Good kid. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so today and tomorrow, you got people out there waiting for the hordes. They're going to show up. They've heard the radio show. They're going to come out and say, I don't care for that host of that radio show, but we want to take a look at the cats and kittens. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's go to dogs now. How about some dogs for adoption? Okay, we've got some beautiful dogs, including Riley. And Riley is a chocolate lab, a spade female, about four years old. Uh, She has loads of energy. So she's 93 pounds, and she wants to go and go and go some more. So she is looking for a very active family that can keep up with her. Okay, you've got uh, the walks going on twice a day. Maybe you're kind of a low-profile jogger. Uh, Riley might be your perfect dog. So what do you say? Take a look at Riley's picture. Maybe go out and see Riley today. Riley's got a few buddies. Our next dog for adoption is? We'll talk about Rudolph. The red. A very handsome boxer mix. (laughs) About a year old. Uh, He can be very calm. He'll be happy to sit on the couch and watch a movie with you. But then you bring (laughs) out the toys and he gets very excited and is ready to play. So he'll make a fine companion for a family that has time and energy to keep up with him and we'll give him a very very nice home oh fun neat looking dog take a look at the picture of rudolph okay we've got riley rudolph and and then we'll talk about hank jr and he is a nine-year-old german short-haired pointer mix um hounds are great companions he's looking for a family that will treat him with kindness he does need a home without cats 
<laughs> and with bigger dogs. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about Hank Jr., you can find out a little more information on our website, or you can visit us at the Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Okay, we've got three great dogs here, Riley, Rudolph, and Hank Jr. And um, what are hours open today and tomorrow? Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, uh, we're going to have really high heat this coming week. Uh, temperatures in the 90s to just over 100 degrees. So um, what can you tell people that are keeping pets outside? Right. So you want to be sure if they must be outside that there is shade, um, that the air is able to circulate. So like a, um, under a tree with shade is going to be better than an enclosed area where it can be really hot. But really, if it's too hot for you and you want to be in the AC, your pet does mm-hmm. want a cool place too, and they want to be in the AC. So please, you know, be use good judgment. Um, never leave your pet in the car. Um, be sure that if they're outside that they do have fresh, cool water, um, that they're properly groomed. Um, it's just really important that you know how to keep your dog safe because uh, heat stroke and, and heat stress can be prevented. Mm-hmm. Okay, Charlene, thank you so much for all that you do. It's great to have this relationship. Sometime, Jim and Charlene, we're going to have to figure out how many years it's been. I'm going to have to try That's- to dredge up the old memories there, but boy, it's been a long time. Well, mm-hmm. we really sincerely appreciate all that you do to promote these beautiful animals and help them to find homes. Well, thank you so much. And let's do this next week. Sounds great. Okay. All the best, Shirley. You too. Shirley and friends at the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn. Our main guest coming up today is Mark Nesbitt. Uh, Mark has written so many books that I don't think I could even do the book list with two big breaths. Um, it runs almost a full page. Uh, he's the author of the famous series Ghosts of Gettysburg and his wife, and uh, he live in Gettysburg. So we're going to be talking about the Civil War battle and about the ghosts and hauntings that have been taking place in and around Gettysburg. Our friend Paula Harris joins us next. Paula makes her home in Colorado, and she's there basically to catch up on laundry, see a few family and friends, and then she's off on boots on the ground research. And Paula, it's great to have you back on the show. You were traveling in June. We couldn't get you. Yeah, I've been traveling since... May 6th when I went to Peru. So I've been to Peru, Europe, Roswell, California, uh, to the uh, Alien Con there. I've been everywhere, and I'm staying home now. So just know I'll be around for the next two months. Paula, would before we, we uh, end today's segment with you, I want to make sure and talk about Starworks coming up, the, uh, the conference in November that you're doing. And... Uh, how that is different from other conferences. Would you be okay? I sent you a late night email last night. There is a term being used now on some social media groups and in the media that in the same sentence with the word UFO is being used the word threat. What's going on with this? Well, uh, 
unfortunately, and I, I don't want to name the show, but there is a show uh, that is on television uh, that deals with To the Stars Academy people. And uh, I happen to be in Italy, and so I researched this when I was there, uh, and I realized that I knew everybody on that show, and it had to do with a case that I investigated in 2006 that inspired my book, How Do You Speak to a Ball of Light?, because the case was on the island of Sicily where these balls of light came out of the water. So I was studying that case. I was living there at the time, and I was called into the naval uh, stay, uh, the big naval building in Rome by the man that was on the show to tell me that it was a UFO phenomenon, that these balls of light came into the uh, city of Caronia uh, in Sicily, that the um, FEMA people, which is our Protezione Civile, our civil, uh, you know, civil patrol, they didn't know what to do, and so the balls of light would go into houses, interact with the electric appliances, and set the houses on fire. Nobody died. Uh, the, the, the balls of light were intelligent, which makes it really strange. And they couldn't control the phenomenon even when they shut the electricity off. So they moved the people out of this tiny village named Caronia, and they put security cameras there. And, and when I got the report or the briefing in 2006, the same naval officer that's in the show here in America told me there were no casualties, but they were very, very upset because they knew it was UFO-related, but they couldn't do anything about it. So the deal was they let it go because you can't do anything about it. It didn't kill anybody, but they had to move the people out of the city. Now I'm watching American television, and he's saying there was a shoot-down of the helicopter. Well, the helicopter landed with the pilot intact. It was not a shoot-down. The problem was that the helicopter, which was not a military helicopter, it was like our Protezione Civile helicopter, interacted with one of the balls of light, and it melted a little bit of the rotors. So it's been spun, or it's been, uh, they're spinning it to make it look like UFOs shoot down planes, and then they will go to the Congress in the United States to get money uh, to uh, say that there is a threat from outer space. If I hadn't known who was speaking, if I hadn't covered the story in 2006, I would never have spoken up, but I did speak up, and we need to be careful what we're watching. Yeah, there is a, a, a pretty large Facebook group that I was invited to join that has in its name uh, the word threat. And uh, it, well, of course. it seems yeah. like this is being spun out there by, gosh... I, I couldn't think of a better way to do this if I myself was one of the secret keepers to try to keep a, a, a kind of a tamper on this release of information and maybe to channel it into a way that they can get some military spending. Yeah, let's eventually say that it's a, a real event, but that it's a threat. And therefore, we've got to have... No, it 
Scott, it wasn't a threat, and I think the way to, to do that, if you were going to post, just say, do you honestly think that the Italian government would release classified information to a TV show? I don't, yeah, I personally don't think it's a threat. I think that... that no, but it's when, just the logic. When we go, I mean, if we have such, something like that that's that major, that's got a post-speed weapon, do you honestly think the Italian government would release it to a TV show in America? They'd, they'd release it to a newspaper. They'd release it to the general public. They'd release it in Italy. They wouldn't release it to an American TV show. If we go all the way back to the uh, the Kenneth Arnold sightings, the 1940s, 1950s, um, this has been a topic that's come up at times. There was a period of time where the Air Force said, um, uh, we got to shoot him down. And uh, we tried to do that, and we lost a lot of airplanes uh, in doing so. Um, I think that the... the uh, the idea of the threat is a total misdirection. I think it's a disinformation. Especially when that helicopter was not shot down. The pilot yeah. landed. He landed. He didn't even, he didn't even like eject. He landed the helicopter. He landed it, and the rotor blades are a little melted. That's it. That's it. I mean, if somebody just points out the details on that thread, the pilot landed safely. Where is the shoot down? And uh, also, if it was a classified uh, situation, why would it be released on a TV show? We, I mean, a commercial TV show. I'm not talking about CNN or a news show. Yeah, I, you know, so a lot of this is logic. It's it's not only being spun, it's major entertainment. For me, this is the latest flavor of ice cream in the UFO community, just like the <laughs> Secret Space Program was in the last two years. Yeah. I mean, everybody was talking about the Secret Space Program, Secret Space Program for two years. Then it went away because the stars of the show went away. And then now we got this. It's like if people don't do their work. They don't, If I hadn't been involved... Um, myself in 2006, I mean, I've got pictures of myself with the people at the table there. I mean, I got pictures in 2006 of all those people. There's only one military man. The rest of them are, uh, are MUFON, which is the Centro Ufologico Nazionale. There's all MUFON, like MUFON people from Italy. I mean, MUFON, not MUFON America, MUFON Italy, and one military guy. So it is, it was, and that was just a dinner. I found out that that, that was a uh, it was a performance. It was a show. They happened to have cameras. Those guys were invited to a conference there, and they happened to have cameras. So it is totally spun out, and, and I'm saying this because I just returned from Italy two weeks ago. I just returned. So talk about uh, boots on the ground. You always say boots on. Well, I was, I was boots on the ground. I was there. Uh, so I only, I only comment when I personally have done the work. Not, uh, I don't give my opinion. When I'm personally involved is when I comment. Uh, this is Paula Harris. Uh, her first name is spelled P-A-O-L-A. The last name is Harris, paulharris.com. So Paula, tell us about Starworks in November. Why is this well, a Well, you're going to be part of that too. I'm so happy to have you there. I picked a theme-based conference, as you know. 
Uh, and this year's theme base is remote viewing, which I'm really interested in. It's ESP, uh, you know, the use of ESP. Of course, the way that we think, we used it for military applications first. We used it for intelligence gathering in the 70s when we didn't have satellites. We would use psychics and people like Ingo Swan, and the testing was done at Stanford Research Institute with Hal Putoff and Russell Targ. And Russell, we have Russell Targ. I just talked to him yesterday. He was really excited to come and talk about um, this uh, research. He also said he wanted to do testing with the audience, which is fun, uh, about ESP. Uh, he, he wants to do a couple of tests. Um, and what was what the uh, the the reason is is because it is the faculty that the ETs use to communicate. They use direct thought transfer. Uh, people that have ESP either become clairvoyants or psychics, and we all have this sense, the sixth sense. We all have it, and I'm just excited that we can build a conference around it. The address for that website is starworksusa.com, and it's November 1st yes. through the 3rd in Laughlin, Nevada. As Paula said, I'm going to be there. I, I hope to see a lot of folks there. It's a chance to have uh, extended conversations with people that are of like mind from all over the world, and instead of hearing about threat or the type of metal that's being found or is used on the craft. The focus is more on, let's, let's assume that there's a real phenomena and that the nexus, the commonality between us and quote unquote them is consciousness. And so it's a very, very interesting theme-based conference <clears throat> I can't wait to meet some of these these folks. Um, Russell targets an honor, Paula, to to have him attend. And then we're talking about maybe a hookup via Skype with none other than Yuri Geller. Yeah, he told me he would do it after he bent my key, Scott. Oh. <laughs> he basically, I was talking uh, about him to Angela Thompson-Smith, who is the military remote viewer that we have. And then I went to get my keys, and my car keys were bent. So I called him in Israel, and he said, why did you do that? He, he doesn't know he's doing that, you know. I mean, when we talk about him, weird things happen. And he agreed to come in on Skype uh, to talk to the people. Well, I'm going to make sure I've got my keys well away from Mr. Giller when, <laughs> when, we, uh, when we talk to him. Yeah, so. I want to also add, Scott, that if they want to save the most money, they need to sign up before August 1st. Because early bird ends August 1st. So information at starworksusa.com. Okay, Paula, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you for you being you. Thank you so much, Scott. Enjoy the weekend. Paula Harris, uh, now home in Boulder. And uh, we'll see her again in uh, Laughlin, Nevada in November. Probably talk to her before then in months to come. Yeah, the idea of the threat, you know, is uh, non-existent, folks. If this phenomena wanted to do anything like that, they would have already done so. Um, 
What's the other side of the word threat? I'm just, I'm going to have you kind of, what's, what's the uh, antithesis, the polar opposite of threat? And have you think about that. And maybe think about misdirection that's being employed. We're going to take a break. and We'll come back with our main guest, Mark Nesbitt. He's the author of the celebrated Ghosts of Gettysburg series. And uh, I can't wait to have this conversation. Stay tuned for more. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty. We're going to fill up our coffee cups and hope you do the same. We'll be right back. KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Do you want to see how your food is growing? This is Bob Hendrickson, host of KZUM's How's It Growing? Join us on our second annual local farm tour presented with Buy Fresh, Buy Local Nebraska on Saturday, July 27th. We'll tour three local farming operations, beginning at Grow with the Flow at 9 a.m., then Robinette Farms, before concluding with the lunch at Broccoli Pharmaceuticals. This year's farm tour is free but limited to 50 people and registration is required. Find out more and reserve your spot at kzum.org. Full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. 
Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. There's a Nebraska night right there, the crickets and the, the hoot owl. My former house had a low-hanging tree uh, branch in the backyard, and there was a small hoot owl mm -hmm. that used to like to perch on that. And my kids, when they were little, we would go out in the backyard in the darkness and stand there. And after a couple of minutes, that little hoot owl would let out a, a call. And we'd look really hard and say, yep, there he is, right up there. <laughs> so, it's summertime in Nebraska. It's great to have you here, folks. Jim Shorty, Scott Colborn, we've got some Sulawesi coffee in our cups. What are you guys and gals drinking to, to uh, enjoy the Saturday morning with, huh? Jim, with the, uh, the high heat that we're experiencing here in, in Lincoln, this last week I thought about... The Battle of Gettysburg, mm -hmm. and these guys, boys, oftentimes, wearing uh, wool uniforms, um, of course, no air conditioning, and um, sometimes scarcity of water, blazing sun, and then the battles for three days. Mm -hmm. We've got a historian and author with us, Mark Nesbitt. Mark is a, a pretty interesting guy. He and his wife, Carol, live in the town of Gettysburg. He's got lots of background in terms of research from a variety of careers. He's written um, almost a half to three quarters of a page of, of books, including the celebrated Ghosts of Gettysburg series. He's got a brand new book that just got released this year that's a work of fiction called Die Again Once More. And he's a historian, uh, historian, if you will. He has chronicled the Battle of Gettysburg and other Civil War engagements. He and his wife, Carol, operate Mark Nesbitt's um, Ghosts of Gettysburg tours. And that is certainly on my to-do list at some point. I would love to go to Gettysburg and walk those same fields and orchards, stand on the promontories, and take one of Mark's tours. I would love to experience that. So the second best thing is to have Mark Nesbitt himself with us, and here he is. Mark, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you too, Scott. So back in 1863, there was no air conditioning, was there? Uh, no, as a matter of fact. I think the only air conditioning they had was a nice uh, 
westerly breeze and maybe uh, when they fanned themselves with a, a piece of old newspaper. But no, and in Gettysburg, of course, in July of 1863 was when that was fought. It was uh, in the uh, mid to high 80s. So, it, and they, as you mentioned before, they were in their wool uniforms. So it got pretty steamy here in those three days, first three days of July 1863. Was uh, was the Battle of Gettysburg in multiple ways, was it inevitable? Oh, that's a, that is a good question. You know, I, I you can look at that two ways. You can look at it historically, and then you can also look at, at it metaphysically, because mm-hmm. I write about that. I write about how um, Gettysburg may have been doomed, at least the area, to be a battleground. We know that thousands of years ago, uh, Native Americans fought over this area. In fact, the battle may have been bigger, but of course unrecorded, than the Battle of Gettysburg. And then, of course, here it wow. is, uh, uh, maybe maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years later, when you know the white man comes along and fights his brother-to-brother war. And uh, so that's one way of looking at it. And then historically, if you look at um, a map, a modern-day or 1863 map of the Gettysburg and Adams County, which is where Gettysburg is, Pennsylvania area, you'll notice that radiating out from the center square of town are about 10 different roads. In other words, Gettysburg is like the hub of a wheel. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning of end of June 1863, you had approximately 75,000 Confederates moving up into Pennsylvania, approximately 97,000 Union troops trying to stay between them and Washington, which is farther south, the capital of the north. They're going to run into each other someplace, okay, in a place with 10 roads all all coming together. I mean, that's, that's as likely a place as any mm-hmm. for uh, these two huge armies to be to bump into each other and then have a battle escalate. Um, the 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 big battle before Gettysburg was at Chancellorsville. Correct. And uh, that was a South victory, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was a, a huge victory for the South. Um, uh, in that they virtually, I mean, they were outnumbered by at least two, sometimes three to one, depending on the time of the battle. But um, we, of course, had with them Stonewall Jackson, which was, he, he, he considered him his right arm. And uh, Jackson uh, proposed a, a flank march on the Union lines and spent all day marching to get into position and then finally attack uh, around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, driving, I mean, the, the most vulnerable part of, of a, of a Civil War army is the flank at the end of because they did linear warfare. Mm-hmm. And he just drove that flank in uh, and basically destroyed General Hooker's, the Union off, uh, commanding officer's plans uh, with that uh, route of the, of the Union Army 11th Corps. And um, then it, 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 the sad part for the Confederacy is uh, Jackson was out reconnoitering because he did that himself, like a lot of the high-ranking officers. And when he was returning 
at night, basically along along the road towards its own line, a new replacement um, regiment had been just put in the line. They thought it was Union cavalry coming towards them. They opened fire. Jackson was wounded. Um, they had necessitated the amputation of his left arm, and uh, he died several days later uh, of of pneumonia and complications from from the wounding. So, as Lee uh, put it, you know, when he wrote to him before, uh, you know, after he was wounded, Lee wrote to him and he said, um, "You have lost your left arm, but I have lost my right." That's how in high regard he. Mm-hmm. Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jackson. Uh, several of the reports that have floated around for years that have said that the the Battle of Gettysburg started over a search for footwear and for boots and shoes. That actually is correct, and I'm glad you put it that way, because a lot of people have, have, have switched that around and said they were coming to, to the shoe factories in Gettysburg. And there were no shoe factories in Gettysburg. Um, the biggest uh, business at those, in those days was actually carriage making in Gettysburg and the surrounding uh, area. But the shoe uh, story is correct because we know that on June 26, four or five days before the Battle of Gettysburg, Jubal Early, a Confederate officer, came through and demanded like 10,000 pairs of shoes. I don't, you know, Gettysburg was 2,400 people. I don't know where he thought he was going to get 10,000 shoes, but his, many of his men were, were shoeless or, or, or were wearing just remnants of the bad shoes that they had uh, where that were issued. Um, and so, yes, they were uh, coming to Gettysburg and, the, and really this part of Pennsylvania, and most almost always they, they demanded shoes wherever they got because an army, you know, obviously marches on its feet. It travels on its feet in those days. They didn't have any uh, uh, mechanized uh, transportation. Mm-hmm. It was all on foot with the infantry. As a, as a young boy, uh, were you interested in the Civil War? Uh, is that where your passion started, Mark? Well, you know, actually, that was interesting because I grew up, I'm old enough to have grown up during the centennial of the uh, Civil War, um, 1960s. And um, so at that time, we had a lot more exposure to the Civil War. And um, there were, I remember, there were several TV programs mm-hmm. on. There was a, a big uh, documentary on uh, um, the photography of the Civil War. And I remember coming to Gettysburg prior to that when I was about eight or nine years old. And and then and and then eventually ended up asking my dad, you know, hey, can we go next vacation? Can we go to Gettysburg? I guess I was about ten or twelve years old when we came to Gettysburg, and it kind of, you know, it fascinated me from from that moment on. So the answer to your question is yes, I did mm-hmm. get interested as a young boy, and uh, but I think it was mainly because I had grown up in the centennial era of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, then go on and, and work for the Park Service? Yes, I did. Yeah, I was um, uh, working construction with for my dad's company uh, throughout high school and uh, college. And I well, finally one 
you're going to say, you know, Pop, I think I got to try something different here. And so I applied to be a park ranger at Gettysburg. And son of a gun, if it, if they didn't have openings, and I, and I got one of the openings, came to Gettysburg and worked that first summer, and then continued to work for the next five years. And at least one of those years, at the very end, I was a, a licensed battlefield guide, which is uh, adjunct to the Park Service. They're the guys that take individual families around the park. But, um, uh, yeah, it was, and it was a fun job. I really, really enjoyed being a what they, what they call interpretive ranger, interpreting the history mm-hmm. of the area. I met some wonderful people in the Park Service. And, uh, and and wonderful people out on the battlefield, you know, uh, tourists, visitors who um, were coming to Gettysburg for some some for the first time, and so I got a really a really good. Um, you know, nothing teaches you. You learn something much more quickly and more effectively when you're trying to be a teacher, and that's what happened because I would get a question in the morning: how many troops were. At such and such, I said, I will get right back to you this afternoon and I will be here. And I would go in and spend my lunch hour in the library looking up the answer to that question because I wanted to get it right. Mm-hmm. So um, that it, it definitely taught me things. You know, there, there are times now when I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but I could, I could give you a pretty good battlefield tour. Uh, this is Mark Nesbitt. He's the author of the celebrated series Ghosts of Gettysburg. He's got a brand new work of fiction that just came out this year called Die Again Once More. And he and his wife, Carol, do tours. And I'm going to give you a couple of, of links here. Uh, this first one is so simple. It's ghostsofgettysburg.com. And uh, if you're at that website, look for the button that says Tour and click on that. And you'll get descriptions also of the, the tours that they do. The, the North and the South, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, armaments. Was the, the rifle of the day still the muzzleloader? Yes. And so basically, and both are, I'm sorry, go ahead. If, if I would understand it correctly, it would almost be as the Revolutionary War tactics that they would have multiple lines where one line would advance and perhaps kneel or fire, and then they would step back as the next line came up with weapons ready, and they would either kneel or stand and fire. And so you had this sort of rolling situation where you had people firing, people stepping back and reloading. Is that a pretty accurate assumption of both the North and the South? Yes, it is. Yeah, that was one of the tactics that they used is, is uh, you know, firing over the front line's head or sometimes firing right next to their ear, which is one of the reasons, you know, you you had you had problems with so many guys going deaf after the Civil War, that and the cannon fire. But um, they maneuvered, yeah, they maneuvered in lines, and the weaponry was virtually the same both north and south. At the beginning of the war, most of the, well, armories were all over the country because it was both, it was all the United States. And the Southerners captured many of the armories that were down south uh, before the um, Union could burn them. And so 
much of their weaponry was was captured. Uh, Great Britain uh, was selling these the probably the best uh, rifle of the day, the Enfield, to both Union and Confederates. They sold four hundred thousand to each side. Wow! So they were kind of playing both sides of the coin there. Level one, they wanted to be on their side, but um, and it took about. I mean, a good soldier, they say, could fire three rounds in a minute. And it was kind of laborious. You know, you had to tear a cartridge with your teeth, pour the powder down, put the bullet, 58-caliber bullet, down the tube, ram it all home, uh, cock the weapon, put a percussion cap on it, and then you could fire. They said a good soldier could fire about three times a minute, but under ideal conditions, but uh, when somebody else is shooting back at you, that's not, those aren't ideal conditions. So they're lucky if they got one shot a minute, um, which gives you an idea. Uh, I'm, I'm doing research now on a battle in the town of Gettysburg uh, called the Brickyard Battle. And one of the participants wrote that they only got between six and nine shots off which tells you they didn't spend much time there. They were probably there maximum 10 minutes. Okay? Mm -hmm. And probably a lot less than that. So it gives you, when you know that information about the loading and the firing and everything, it kind of gives you uh, an insight into what, 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 how much time was spent and what it was like. Um, and to your point earlier about the heat, you know, you're dressed in your wool uniform, and now you're basically doing exercise, okay, trying to load and fire this 10-pound uh, musket. So, But that both sides had basically the same weaponry, and same with the artillery as well. They were muscle loaders as well. Uh, early in the battle, the, the Battle of Gettysburg was July 1st through the 3rd, uh, and uh, July 4th was a, a day of... Of retreat or reorganization. Uh, early on, did the uh, the Union Army get the high ground? Yes, uh, and that was one of the key features or key uh, uh, moments in the battle. Interestingly enough, it was the Confederates. It was the fact that the Confederates won on the first day and drove the Union troops from their position north and west of town, back through the town of Gettysburg to the high ground south of town, the Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill, and Cemetery Ridge, mm -hmm. and then eventually back down to the Round Tops, which are the highest features in the area. So that, that was an important point. Inadvertently, the Confederates, after winning the first day, drove the Union troops to the positions that they held, which helped them win the battle. So... Um, your statement is true. Scott, you've been reading up a little bit on this battle. This is good. This is a good question. Oh, Mark, I, you know, this is one of the things that maybe we'll talk privately about at greater length sometime. But since I was a, a young boy, I was fascinated by the Civil War. Um, I used to carry around in my head all the information about the generals on both sides, the troop deployments, the number of men, the, the, uh, Parts of the battle, the good choices, the bad choices. I, as a kid, gosh, ten or twelve years old, I was always at the library reading about this, and so I, 
I, I had a great fascination, and Gettysburg has always been of tremendous interest. And I, I can't, my daughter and I have talked about trying to get back to go to Gettysburg and spend two or three days there. And when we make that happen, I'm going to look you up and take one of your tours. That's a guaranteed yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah, it, it, I consider a trip to Gettysburg uh, kind of a rite of passage for any American, you know, if mm-hmm. you're, you know, if you're, if you want to know about our history, I mean, you got, you got everything here. You know, you got the Underground Railroad, you got the Great Battle, you got the, uh, uh, you know, the conflict over slavery, you got the the, the, the fact that the, the this United States that we have could have been two countries or more, you know, could have split up even even worse so than just two countries. So it's, it, it's a very important place, of course, the, the Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. We have all these historic buildings here in Gettysburg out of the 400 that were here at the time of the battle. 200 are left. They're still here, and you can put your hand where a or a soldier maybe leaned against the building to fire a shot. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty fascinating place, and then you're certainly welcome anytime, and we'll get together when you do. And if, you know, forty to fifty thousand casualties. Was it fifty-one thousand? Yeah. Close. When I was with the Park Service, we always used to quote fifty-one thousand. I've also heard quotes of forty-five thousand, but mm-hmm. you know. If they don't know, if they're if they're still kind of arguing about it, that says something too. There are a lot of missing, a lot of unaccounted for bodies out there. So still out mm-hmm. there. And folks, as we take the break too, I want you. We've talked about the weather, the uh, the heat, the humidity, the woolen uniforms, um, the men that were looking for water because you got to have water. And so now. Think about this first day of battle, um, 15,000 men, maybe, have been killed or wounded. Just imagine the hospitals. Some of these men were not men, they were boys, weren't they? Uh, Well, the average age was probably between 22 and 24. But they were younger. They were younger than that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mark. So we've um, we've in a way set the stage. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about your experience uh, working there as a, a park ranger, and maybe the first stories that you started to hear about ghosts and hauntings in and around Gettysburg. Sounds great. Um, how's Carol doing, by the way? She's doing fine. She's doing fine. We're here in Gettysburg uh, for this weekend. It's bike week. So you may hear a little loud roar every <laughs> once in a while outside the window. And it's just one, one weekend out of the year that we have this. Mm-hmm. Well, my best to, to your wife, Carol. You guys are a, a dynamic duo. You've got a lot going on there. And uh, uh, having done a tour operation myself, I know a little bit about what you go through there. So. Okay, uh, Mark, uh, it's just great to have you back on the show again. Please stay right there, and and uh, we'll do the top-of-the-hour break. And, folks, we'll come back with Mark Nesbitt. Um, at some point, too, I may try to read all these books and see how many times I can breathe, because there's a bunch. Um, the brand-new one is a work of fiction called Die Again Once More, 
And then the series Ghosts of Gettysburg, there's uh, at least seven, no, excuse me, eight of that, let alone for the rest of the books. Um, Mark's website, it's pretty easy to find. It's ghostsofgettysburg.com. I'm Scott Colborn. Please stay tuned. We've got some great stories coming up. Jim's here. You guys and gals out there with your morning beverages, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. KZUM's Summer Concert Series runs every Thursday at 7 o'clock through August 1st at Stransky Park near 17th and Harrison. This week, join us for the live moonbeam swing of the lightning bugs with food by the Gilded Swine. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Dietz Music, Butheris Mazer and Love, and Shirts 101. That's this Thursday, July 18th at 7 o'clock at Stransky Park. Find out more on Facebook and kzum.org. Swim through the sea of mad Support for KZUM comes from Maha Music Festival. Friday and Saturday, August 16th and 17th at Omaha's Exarban Village. Featuring Lizzo, Jenny Lewis, Muscle Cousins, Shark Week, Omaha Girls Rock, and many more. Plus activities from over 30 local nonprofits. Passes, schedule, and more at MahaFestival.com. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. 
Scott Colborn along with Jim Shorney and you guys and gals. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. It's sure great to have you with us. Next week's guest is Linda Godfrey. She's got a brand new book out called I Know What I Saw, Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. Just got released. Linda Godfrey is with us next week. It's uh, with lots of pleasure that we welcome Mark Nesbitt back to the program. Um, I like to have Mark on in July because we get to talk about uh, Gettysburg, about what happened there July 1st through the 3rd, uh, 1863. It's 156 years ago uh, as we speak today. And we also get to talk about the nature of this incredible release of emotion, the conflict perhaps itself, somehow perhaps being connected with ghosts and hauntings that are still being reported in and around Gettysburg. Mark, when you were with the, the, um, the Park Service, did you start hearing reports, or was it even before then? Well, you know, when I was first coming here as a, as a youth, I um, <clears throat> would have, you know, we'd make friends in town, you know, the local lifeguard and things like that at the mm-hmm. motel. And, uh, you know, I, I remember asking once, are there, you know, are there any ghost stories about Gettysburg? And she was like, well, the only one I know of is uh, this cemetery. And I, oh, okay. So I kind of put it on a back burner for years. And then when I worked here, um, I remember asking one of my bosses uh, what if he had heard any ghost stories. And uh, he kind of laughed, and he said, listen, Gettysburg has so many true stories that'll scare the pants off of you. You don't need any ghost stories. In other words, the horror that these men went through mm-hmm. is certainly enough to, to, to scare you. You don't need a ghost story. But when I was working for the Park Service, I got to live in some of the historic buildings that dot the battlefield. Mm-hmm. They put rangers in those for security purposes. And almost every single one of them that I lived in, I had something weird happen to me. And the one that I think kind of kind of kicked this all off was one time I was in, I actually lived in the cemetery lodge, which is the big uh, brick building right inside the Baltimore Street entrance to the National Cemetery. Big iron gates in front of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, you know, a lot of people think that ghosts only come out at night. This was the middle of the afternoon. I had just finished lunch, and I was carrying my dishes out to the kitchen from the dining room, and all of a sudden, I I stopped because I heard a baby crying. And then it stopped. And then I was like, what the heck was that? You know, uh, and I'm trying to explain what it was to myself. You know, I was pipes. That's the pipes? I've never heard that before. It sounded like a... A cry, you know, a human cry, and then how settling? Oh, this thing's been here 120 years, not mm-hmm. settling anymore. So, you know, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders, and uh, sometime in the, in, the, in the next week or two, I casually mentioned it in the um, coffee room to my colleagues, and they said, you need to talk to such and such. 
who lived there before you because she's got some stories. And sure enough, she had heard babies crying in that building. And I was like, now where would, what the heck? And then I realized that just two doors down from the cemetery lodge was the old orphanage that was established after the Civil War for the orphans of the Civil War soldiers who never came back. And the second headmistress that they had there was particularly cruel. And there were reports of children crying in the night. And um, I'm like, okay, all right, is that, could that be it? Well, you know, I continue to ask questions and some of the older park rangers and then you know, you kind of get to be a magnet when people know you're interested, mm-hmm. and they want to tell you their ghost stories. And so I collected enough ghost stories, and it took probably 10 years mm-hmm. to do that. I collected enough ghost stories for the very first Ghosts of Gettysburg book. And when that book came out, within two weeks of that, I was getting phone calls, letters, faxes. This is way before tweets or anything like that, from people who basically said to me, um, I've never had a paranormal experience in my life, but this past summer or two summers ago, whatever, I came to Gettysburg, and here's what happened to me. And I literally got hundreds and hundreds of these letters and uh, continue to use some of the letters, more recent ones, in, in, my, in my more recent books. So it was one of the things that people didn't really talk about too much, but it was certainly happening a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to the two people who visited Gettysburg, whether they had a paranormal experience before or not, whether they were psychic or not, didn't seem to matter. So that's where the rest of the books came from. Uh, we a, a lot of people have the mistaken impression that the battle was fought outside town, that the town was not part of the battle, that it was fought in the surrounding countryside. The actual, uh, uh, the reality is that much of the fighting ebbed and flowed and came into town. There were civilians um, that were shot um, by mistakenly uh, with bullets going through walls and things. Uh, I used to have Mark as one of our uh, uh, regular segment guests a young woman whose sister uh, had lived in Gettysburg. This is modern day. And uh, she lived on one of the main streets. And she said um, that it wasn't unusual at uh, a time of day to walk down the upstairs hallway and look into a room that's now being used as a bedroom, which overlooked the street below, and to glance in the doorway and see on either side of the window Union sharpshooters with their rifles ready looking for Confederate troops on the street below. Wow, that's that's a good story. I wish I, <laughs> I met that person so I could write about it. But no, that that is true. And you, what you said uh, before was, was true in that the uh, uh, battle, a lot of people come into Gettysburg and they come up to our front desk and they say, where's the battlefield? And it's, it's almost like a standing joke in Gettysburg because anybody who says that, you just look at them and say, you're standing on it. Mm-hmm. You know, this 
land right here because the first day's battle was fought north and west of town. Union troops were driven through the town of Gettysburg. Confederates had occupied the uh, the town of Gettysburg. In fact, our building where we run the tours out of, the back half of it was there at the time of the battle. And we know for a fact because of the two women who lived in the in at the time of the battle in the house, uh, talked to a reporter many, many years later and said, we had a Union soldier come up to our door who was wounded. And they gave him water and some food. And all of a sudden, there's this commotion outside, and the Confederates are chasing the Union troops through the town of Gettysburg and, and going right past their door. So they hustled him upstairs to the attic. It was the only place they could hide him. And Confederates come pouring into the house and occupied the house for the rest of the, the battle. The women um, knew they had to get the soldier out of the attic, otherwise he'd be captured and taken to prison. And so they created some sort of ruse. The Confederate soldiers all ran over to see what was going on, and the other woman led the Union soldier out and across, I would imagine, our balcony outside. So you can kind of follow his footsteps and into the house next door, which was not occupied by Confederate troops. And this story is not unusual. I mean, it just, it's, it happened all the time um, during the battle where uh, – and, and, and there were some battles, some, some serious bloodletting within the confines of, of the borough of Gettysburg. Uh, there was some fighting at the corner of Chambersburg and Washington, North Washington Street. And as I mentioned before, there was the, what they called the Brickyard Battle, which was um, a pretty pretty serious battle and 770 casualties in this one short fight out there uh, on the edge of town and then with the troops coming, which is town now. So, there, you know, and then of course the college uh, had, was fought over. Uh, there, were, there were troops going in and out through the fields of the playing fields of the college now the lutheran theological seminary out there was fought over there are only three or four buildings out there at the time of the battle but confederates drove the union troops from that area down into the town so i think a lot of people don't realize the scope of this battle how huge it was how confederates were were 30 miles away in carlisle pennsylvania 30 miles to the east of us Near uh, the Susquehanna River and up north to the uh, to the Susquehanna River, here just overlooking Harrisburg. It was huge. It was absolutely massive. And of course, the casualties were basically modern day Yankee Stadium holds about fifty two thousand people. If you take fifty one thousand as the number of casualties, that's how many in three days were dropped down on the town of Gettysburg of about. 2,400 people, probably less than that because a lot of men in town took all their dry goods and even even livestock and, and headed north, trying to get them away from the Confederates who were coming into town. So you have probably maybe maybe 1,000, maybe 1,500 women and children in Gettysburg to take care, along with a few nurses and some uh, uh, nuns that came up from Emmitsburg take care of 51,000 casualties, and it was almost impossible. And so men suffered terribly. But that's, that was their fate in, in the time of the Civil War.
Is there a, is there a water supply nearby? What, what did guys do for water? Well, you know, every place, uh, every, every building, every house had its own supply of water. They had wells. But they soon went dry. I mean, I used to, I used to live in a house in the mountains that had a well, and, and I had to be careful because if it was dry for a week or two, the well was low, and um, one shower a day was about all you could get. So when you have literally hundreds of men trying to drink out of the same well, it goes dry pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, the water was a problem, although you had flowing streams in Gettysburg. You had Plum Run, which runs just uh, below Little Round Top. Problem is, eventually, it became polluted with the blood of the soldiers who, who crawled to it. And, um, in fact, they renamed it Bloody Run. Um, so you did have water supplies, but all the wells in town went dry almost immediately. After the uh, um, first day's battle, uh, what was your assessment of what the North had to do and what the South wanted to do. The North has been driven through Gettysburg, um, and so they've now tried to entrench into high ground. And um, the South, of course, trying to bring the attack to them, they know where they are. Uh, would, would that first day have changed the results if the Confederates would have pursued more relentlessly? That's one of the great what-ifs of the Battle of Gettysburg, of course. Um, and to answer that, I, you know, I have to say I don't know because no one tried it. But yes, the Confederates, the Union troops, after a whole day of fighting, after running for their lives through the town of Gettysburg, getting up on um, Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, they were they were totaled. I mean, they were exhausted. Had there been a, a push by the Confederates, um, they could have been dislo- the Union troops could have been dislodged and driven back in panic on their own columns, marching columns of troops coming towards them, and that may have cause the panic because you don't like to see your own troops running from the battlefield if you're marching towards it mm-hmm. and they're you know you, you would happen to suddenly try and find a defensive position somewhere south of Gettysburg under fire as Confederates advanced but then again on the Confederate side they were exhausted too yes they were happy they were thrilled uh, with the victory but they were disorganized because they had just moved through the town part of the town and so the uh, in fact, Lee actually asked, uh, ordered um, one of his commanders to attack, and then he put the fateful words, if practicable. And this commander, uh, General Ewell, decided it wasn't very practical to make his advance and attack. He wanted to reorganize. By the time that happened, it was dark, and and, and the battle for the first day was over because they didn't often fight at night, especially not knowing, you know, it's only the first day they were here, they didn't know the, the terrain or what was ahead of them or things like that. And overnight, then, the Union Army grew from this 
this uh, defeated, demoralized uh, handful of, of men, several thousand men, um, to that 97,000 that I mentioned before. Uh, so they, they and, and the position was, was, was beautiful. I mean, it was like a big fish hook is the way people describe it. From Culp's Hill, it curved through the cemetery and, and Cemetery Hill. Down Seminary Ridge was the shank of the hook. And then the eye of the hook was Little Round Top and, uh, and Big Round Top. So you had positions uh, that were solid. The next day, July 2nd, we decided to attack both ends of that line, going through some pretty rough terrain, especially down by Little Round Top, of course, mm-hmm. you know, what Devil's Den is like. It's mm-hmm. a big jumble of rocks. It's, it's more like house-to-house fighting than it is um, moving in, in, in organized lines. You can't move through, through Devil's Den like that. So <clears throat> that was, you know, that's where it started the second day. But, um, yeah, the, yeah the, it was, it, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. The, the, uh, uh undertaking, Jim, uh, I don't mean to be facetious here, but we are so reliant on our technology now, on cell phones, on our iPads and computers and things. If we want to see what's going on, we can find out pretty quickly. Yeah. But think about 156 years ago, if they wanted to send a report from the battlefield to the general, their commanding officer, how do they do it? A rudder, fast horse. Yeah, they sent uh, somebody probably on a fast yeah. horse to, and maybe sent multiple in case one of them didn't get through. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got the message being received, and let's say that that's an hour, and then there is a conference, and the, the generals are taking a look at the map, and they're making a best guess of where all the troops are and where the opposing troops are. And then they come back and say, okay, let's do this, and then send out runners to hopefully connect with the men hopefully, out there where yeah. you think they are. And sometimes those runners didn't get to where they had to be. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, an attempt to control chaos and yeah. confusion. And there's no such thing as real time. And what, what Mark just said about uh, Lee's order to uh, Earl, uh, or Yule rather, to attack if practical, uh, if that would have been attack relentlessly, maybe it would have changed mm-hmm. the, the whole outcome there. So yeah, we, we, we get so wrapped up, don't we, Mark, in technology, we forget what it was like back then. Yeah, it was a different world. The high tech back then was, uh, uh, they called them wigwag, you know, uh, semaphore. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would they had a semaphore or uh, wigwag station up on Little Round Top. And for a while, I believe the Confederates had one, uh, or maybe the Union had one, on, on the, in the cupola of Old Dorm, Pennsylvania Hall, in the, um, uh, on, the, on the Gettysburg College campus. That was high tech, you know. You you watch through binoculars and 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 decipher what they were saying to you with these flags. Mm-hmm. And um, but you're right, the, the the courier was the was the key, and they would often send one, and then 
two minutes, five minutes later, send another one in case the first one was killed. And often it happened. Um, so, and the other thing you have to remember is that the Union line, as I said, was in the shape of a fish hook. And going, sending a courier from one end of the line to the other, it was only about two miles because it was an interior line. The Confederates had an exterior line. Their line wrapped around that fish hook. So if General Lee wanted to send a, a message to one end of the line to the other, that was seven or eight miles. Mm-hmm. Big difference when you try to communicate rapidly, and especially if you're on offense, like Lee was. Uh, when we come back, uh, let's talk about how Calvary uh, played a part in this, or uh, if it even did. Uh, this is Mark Nesbitt, and he's the author of the celebrated series Ghosts of Gettysburg. He and his wife Carol operate a thriving business called Mark Nesbitt's Ghosts of Gettysburg Tours. The overall website that leads you to a number of places is ghostsofgettysburg.com. And Mark's got a brand new book um, that just came out here this year, too, called Die Again Once More. It's a work of fiction. Stay tuned for more conversation with Mark Nesbitt. And, uh, Mark, this will be a little longer break, so if you need to get up and use the restroom or get more coffee, uh, you'll be able to do so. And, again, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. We've got about uh, maybe 15 more minutes left here. So, okay? Sounds good. Yeah, Jim, I'm just like a guy in the candy store. This is this is one of my favorite topics. Yeah, I I told Mark on the phone that you were excited. So. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this is just fantastic. Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Yep. Um, Jim Shorty, Scott Colborn, Mark Nesbitt, and you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. We'll be right back.
just today nothing's going right there's no sparkle in my morning and the moon won't shine tonight and it feels like I'm off center and the one in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues listed here. This is live music coming to stages this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, July 13th, the Machete Archive, Universe Contest, and her Flyaway Manor play Duffy's Tavern beginning at 9. Blues Project starts at 6 at the Zoo Bar, followed at 9.30 by those far-out arrows with drugs and addicts. David Boy performs at 7 p.m. at Metal Art Coffee. The Bay hosts a Nebraska Music Academy showcase beginning at 6.30. Joseph Huber is at the Bourbon at 9. And the Tidball and Barger Band plays Crescent Moon at 8. Sunday, July 14th, brings Jason D. Williams to the Zoo Bar at 5, followed at 8 by Zoolarius. Duffy's Tavern hosts an 8 p.m. show with The Stone Eye, The Hideous, and Sadistic Tones, and Lucas Minor starts at 8 p.m. at the Playmore Ballroom. That is live music happening this week in Lincoln. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress, but big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me... Neither a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim Shorney is our co-host. And Jim, how's the coffee doing? Coffee's doing fine. Thank you, Scott. Our music on the program is from the Southeast Nebraska group Enigma. And uh, Jim is sort of their official, unofficial photographer. Yeah. So I get to see a lot of your work on social media. Oh, yeah, it's all over their Facebook page. And we appreciate... Uh, 
We appreciate and, them very much. This disclaimer, Carolyn chooses all the pictures to post. So what you're seeing are the ones that she likes. Scott Colborne with Jim Shorty, our special guest, Mark Nesbitt. And Mark is the author of the celebrated Ghosts of Gettysburg series and other multiple uh, books. He and his wife, Carol, live in the town of Gettysburg. Their website, which is a great jump-off portal, is Ghosts of Gettysburg. And Mark, to, to preface maybe the, the part of our conversation here about Calvary, you've written a book called Saber and Scapegoat, Jeb Stewart and the Gettysburg Controversy. What was that all about? Well, I, for years and years and years, I used to say when I worked, worked for the Park Service, Jeb Stewart, famous Confederate cavalry commander, was at the time of the Battle of Gettysburg off on a joyride uh, around uh, the Union Army and uh, wasn't very helpful in terms of, uh, of uh, leading Lee into giving him his eyes and his ears into the campaign. But the more I thought about it, the more and the more I worked on it, the more I realized that, you know, Stewart was, was a great officer. He was trained just as well as anybody else in both armies. And his career prior to Gettysburg was, was actually stellar. I mean, uh, uh, Lee used him more. Stewart fought more battles than just about anybody else because the cavalry, you know, would I mean, every time you turn around, they're having a fight with somebody. And I, so I started trying to figure out where this came from, that he had abandoned Lee. And I realized, you know, after the war, when the South had lost, they were all trying to find somebody to blame it on. And when it all boiled down and Gettysburg seemed to be the turning point of the war, then it narrowed down, and they wanted to find out, okay, who lost Gettysburg for us? Because, you know, it was ordained uh, that by, by God on high that the South should have its own country. This is their thinking, not, not necessarily mine. But um, so they, they tried to figure out who lost them. They tried to get Longstreet, okay? And he got involved. So that actually what happened is that the— Southerners kind of split into two camps, the people that were on the defense and the people who were trying to find a, a scapegoat for the defeat. And Longstreet, would, because Longstreet had become a Republican, which he didn't do in the South, and also criticized General Lee, which is another thing he didn't do in the South after the war, he became one major scapegoat. The other one, probably because he was conveniently dead, because he died— uh, uh, in May of 1864, was Jeb Stewart, and the the uh, I guess it was Harry Heath who had a great great deal uh, to do with bringing the battle on uh, because Lee didn't really want to bring on a general engagement, and Harry Heath was uh, a Confederate officer who marched right into Gettysburg, got entangled. Lee, when he finally got to the battlefield, he's like, what the heck happened? I said not to bring on a general engagement. Well, Heath was kind of in, in a defensive mode, and so he was the one who made the statement that a giant could be defeated by a pygmy if you put out the giant's eyes, if you made him blind. And that's what 
he was trying to refer to as Stuart taking away the eyes and the ears of the Army. Now, what you realize when you start to do the numbers and everything is that Lee had plenty of cavalrymen with him when he made his invasion. And what Stuart did was basically follow Lee's orders. He gave him discretionary orders, like he gave uh, Ewell on the night of July 1st. Lee was famous for giving you know, discretionary orders. And Stuart took him up on it and actually expanded the, 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 the scope of concern in the, in the Union Army by expanding the battlefield or the invasion field 7,000 square miles when he rode around the Union Army. So now, in other words, the Union Army is not only looking to see where Lee is, but he's also, they're also thinking, wait a minute, we're hearing rumors of cavalry in our rear and going around us. So, and people are always saying, well, Lee, well, you know, Stuart was late for the battle. Well, the battle was an accident. Remember I mentioned the two armies just bumped into each other? Right. Neither, arm, neither commander really wanted to fight here. So, um, how can he be late for an accident? <laughs> Stuart's, Stuart's doing what he's supposed to do. He, uh, uh, sent cavalry to Lee before dawn on July 2nd. So Lee had cavalry to do his scouting on July 2nd, but he sent them off somewhere to, to guard wagon trains or something. It was North Carolina Union. He never, Lee never used cavalry for that anyhow. He mm -hmm. used, he would send out one or two scouts or engineers to check out things. And that's exactly what he did on the morning of July 2nd sent a couple of engineers out to check out Little Round Top. And from that, then formulated his plan. So I just kind of analyzed Stewart's role and defended him and, and, and basically uh, chronicled all the different reasons why people blamed him. And so it was an interesting book. I haven't heard as many people saying since the book came out that, um, that Stewart was late for the battle. <laughs> you mm -hmm. hear it on TV all the time, but not anymore. I would have, uh, <clears throat> myself, I would have looked at um, the decision that Pickett made, uh, the delay that happened, and, uh, you know, not, not having followed through on an earlier success. Um, You've got the, the wheat field, which is a gradual slope, and maybe it's, a, I want to say, um, a mile, maybe, Mark? Um, the, the field of Pickett's Charge, yes, yeah, about nine-tenths of a mile, yeah. And so at the top end of that, you've got the Union troops, and they are, they are now dug in. Um, and they, they have... <laughs> got fields of fire set up. They've got cannon deployed that are shooting what's called uh, grape shot, uh, as well as cannon that are shooting heavier charges over and exploding. The grape shot basically is aimed so that when men are coming up that field, these cannons go off and they're like a gigantic scatter gun. Correct. Uh, and anything in its path is just simply mowed down. So uh, tell us about Pickett. Wasn't there a, a delay in, in him actually starting 
what's now called Pickett's Charge. Right. Well, the overall commander of Pickett's Charge, and, and it was Longstreet, and um, he did not want to make his grand charge on July 3rd. Lee had, on July 2nd, had tried both flanks of the Union line, and they were solid at Culp's Hill and, and, and uh, Little Round Top. And so he deduced that the weakest point must be the center. And unfortunately, to get to the center, any attacking force would have to cross this wide open field uh, after having given them time to, to fortify the, already the stone walls that were already there, mm -hmm. dig in a little bit behind them. He wanted to he soften it up using his artillery. So they did use a two-hour artillery barrage, and numerous times uh, Longstreet was asked, should we move forward? And finally, Longstreet, because he did not want to make this charge, he saw it was going to be a slaughter. And he couldn't even speak. He just nodded his head. And so Pickett then went off to his troops in order to uh, the, the assault to begin. So it wasn't so much Pickett's fault, but it was definitely Longstreet's. But, you know, it, 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 really, it didn't look good. And to, to see the field today, I don't know how many people go out there, even non-military people, and go, what was Robert E. Lee thinking? This is a horrible idea. But other historians have said, well, there are other plans to, to run artillery up right behind the Confederate line. Uh, other One assault did not focus right into the uh, – uh, the right flank did not make a left oblique and focus into the center. We don't know. There are theories now, and, you know, once you got into the uh, – the blame game after the war, you, you hardly got any anything out of the people who were involved. So, but Pickett did say something after the war that was pretty interesting. Someone asked him, "You know, how did how did you lose? How did the Confederates lose at Gettysburg?" And he thought for a second. He said, "Well, I think the Yankees might have had something to do with it." <laughs> <laughs> so that was his, you know, pretty pretty astute too. I mean, you yep. know. Yeah, to be at the bottom of that, that uh, wheat field and to look up and to know what's coming and to have the order to charge. And you're with your, uh, your buddies, guys that you've served with, so you're going to do your best uh, to not let your, your buddies down, uh, but you know that there's going to be a lot of, of casualties, and you're hoping and praying that... that it won't be you. I I don't remember the exact figures of the men that started that charge and the men that were left, but um, at one point they almost breached the Union lines, um, but it's the casualties were incredible. Well, they, they uh, now use the figure 12,500 men began the charge, two-thirds, about 8,000 became casualties, and they did actually poke a hole in that Union line. General Armistead and about 300 Virginians and, and North Carolinians broke through. But the, you know, where were their nearest reinforcements? Because of the large number of casualties on the way over, they really had no backup forces. Mm -hmm. So Armistead was shot down. 
and others um, you know, that were with him were killed or captured. So they did break through, but couldn't exploit it. One of the theories uh, that many researchers have is that when there is this incredible release of emotion, um, in this case, the number of casualties there, that there is some sort of an energy pattern that's created that that plays out, and uh, people can uh, talk about the apparitions. Mark, I've heard stories of people at Gettysburg that are there as tourists that report hearing guns going off and smelling gunpowder, uh, hearing the the earth shake is. A phantom cavalry dashes by, men yelling, the sound of metal upon metal, and it's a bright sunny day, and there's nothing around to cause that. There's no hidden loudspeakers, nobody playing a an iPad or a Walkman in behind a tree someplace. Um, so, given that there is this incredible engagement, um, and that this might have caused a number of things to happen, which linger to this day. Uh, if you could, why don't you close the, the the show here and tell us tell us a ghost story from Gettysburg? Oh wow! Okay, just one. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably all a we have time one. for. A quick one. Um, everything you said was true, by the way. Those uh, what people hear out on the battlefield and in some of the houses in town. But one of my favorite stories is of uh, the the uh, Pennsylvania Hall at Gettysburg College, which is called Old Dorm, used as a hospital. The lower floors used as a hospital, upper floors used as recovery rooms um, during the battle. Fast forward to the 1980s. Two women uh, administrators that I was friends with were on the fourth floor of their administration building, which was what Pennsylvania Hall became uh, in the ensuing years. Working late at night, about 11 o'clock, they decided, okay, time to take it knock it down and go go home. They got in the elevator and pressed the button for the first floor where the, where the elevator went down to one past the first floor into the basement. And they're like, oh, no, what's happened to this elevator? The doors opened to a site that they never would have believed that they hadn't been in that particular building, a hospital scene, a Civil War hospital scene. And they describe it as bloody, gory, surgeon standing there with a saw and a bloody apron over a body that was out on a, 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 a door between two barrels. They're punching the button. The door won't close. Finally, the door closes. They rush up, go immediately to uh, security and report it. And the security guard who I interviewed went over there. They went down to the basement again. The doors open. Pristine. Whitewashed. Walls clean floor. Everything was perfect. Interestingly enough, I interviewed a second woman, or actually a third woman, uh, out in Colorado who had been in that building, different situation, different circumstances with an accounting firm doing an audit. Mm-hmm. They asked her to go and get some papers from the car, got on the elevator down, doors open. She saw the same thing. This is several years later. So I had at least three people that this happened to, um, this vision into a warp in time mm-hmm. that uh, that they saw. So I'm pretty well convinced that what happens 
Ghost of Gettysburg 8. I have a chapter called Deja Vu. Things that I recorded that had happened 15, 20 years ago happened again recently, and I've recorded those in there. So um, it's a phenomenon that I'm still working on figuring out. Mark, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show here today, and I admire you and I appreciate your good work. And uh, one of these days, I'm going to give you a phone call and say, guess what, Mark? I'm coming to Gettysburg. Absolutely. That'd be great, Scott. <laughs> you too, Jim. All right. That'd okay, Mark, trip. give my best to uh, Carol. And again, from a busy week, and thank you so much for taking time to be with us. My pleasure, and thank you, Scott. Mark Nesbitt, um, the author of the celebrated Ghosts of Gettysburg series. You just heard him talk about Gettysburg Volume 8, subtitled Spirits, Apparitions, and Haunted Places of the Battlefield. His website is ghostsofgettysburg.com. That's also a good jump-off point, too, to look at his tours that he does, Mark Nesbitt's Ghosts of Gettysburg Tours. Jim, we just had some folks that walked in the, the yeah, studio here. I'm going to kick people. on the yellow mic over there and identify yourself. Well, I'll be happy to. Thank you so much. My name is Kellen. Uh, I'm a newly certified programmer here, though I've been yeah. uh, involved in Sunday mornings with uh, Murphy's Magic Mess since last August. Very and good. coming up from uh, noon to one, I'm going to be debuting a show concept that I call American Music. Can you guess what we might play? Music from America. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uniquely American sounds. So. <laughs> Hence the name. Absolutely. Okay, beta, beta Radio with Kellen and... This is Liz. She is hey, my Liz. tech support guru today yeah. for tracking purposes. Great. Okay, just a matter of minutes away from uh, Beta Radio with Kellen and Liz. And I hope you have a great show. And isn't this great? We're in air-conditioned comfort here. Mm -hmm. Getting warm out there. Absolutely love that. Okay. So, guys and gals, stay tuned here. We've got a great show with uh, Kellen and Liz coming up, Beta Radio. And, Jim, next week we've got um, Linda Godfrey. She has a brand-new book that's coming out uh, in July, uh, and it's called I Know What I Saw, Modern-Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. And uh, can't wait to have Linda on the broadcast. Jim, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Uh, later today, I'm going up to Omaha to listen to some live music. By? Enigma. Okay. Lots of fun. Cool. Now, I'm going to do some guitar playing, I think. A little lunch, and maybe, uh, I don't know if I can get a lawn mode tonight or not. Oh, sure you can. Oh, sure I can. You got time. Hey, guys and gals, thanks so much for listening. 34 years strong, exploring unexplained phenomena. We'll be back next week with uh, Linda Godfrey. Thanks very much again to Mark Nesbitt. Now, Jim could tell I was excited about today's All broadcast, right. so I hope you guys and gals enjoyed it. Stay tuned for Kellen and Liz with Beta Radio. And until next week, I'm Scott Colborn, Walk in Beauty.